War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells Chapter 14 In London Hello and thank you for joining Public Domain Playhouse for the 14th edition of the War of the Worlds podcast where we also take a look at the background of the story a little bit. And if you were with us last time, you know that we were getting into the most infamous rendition of War of the Worlds done by Orson Welles of No Relation. And as I was looking through some of the background information on this, I actually came across a great article in Smithsonian Magazine at smithsonianmag.com written by a smart young feller by the name of Brad Schwartz, where he takes a look at that night back in 1938. His headline was, The infamous War of the Worlds radio broadcast was a magnificent fluke. And it's interesting to hear it put into that perspective, because as we look back at it now, some 70 years later, it seems like it was a perfect PR stunt. And it ended up being a perfect PR stunt for Orson Welles. But initially, on the day after, he woke up to find himself the most famous man in America, according to this article, and he wasn't sure if he was going to be going away or not, because the public outcry was so great, he was covered in the news for real, coast to coast, for producing a fake news broadcast that put people into a panic, supposedly. And there's a lot of reasons why that may or may not have happened, and there's a lot of speculation as to how big that audience may have been, But the fact remains that there were some people who were terribly frightened that something actually was happening and going on, suspending disbelief that an entire invasion of the Earth and the fall of every nation could happen in a 40-minute radio teleplay. People were so glued to their radios back then that this was how they received breaking information. It would have been like had somebody taken over the internet for a good hour and was broadcasting that there was some kind of an invasion going on. And it's kind of interesting to look at the invasion aspect in terms of literature, too. We've talked about it a little bit in that regard, how H.G. Wells actually set the bar as far as invasion literature goes, because invasion literature up to that point had just been speculating about what if Germany invades England, which eventually, right after 1938, was going to be a certain possibility. They certainly blitzkrieged the heck out of England, H.G. Wells's home turf. So it's kind of interesting to think about this radio teleplay actually in terms of history where it falls, being in 1938 right before World War II really became fully embroiled. On Halloween morning, that CBS broadcast that Wells did was covered coast to coast. Since people supposedly mistook those bulletins for the real thing, a 23-year-old Wells, he was 23 years old when he came up with this, and he was actually the one who came up with the idea of inserting radio bulletins to make it more believable. And we'll get into that a little bit more because that actually came with the development of the script as this article looks at too. But it's hard to believe that Wells was only 23 years old and had already been making a name for himself. But that next morning, he was kind of whisked away to a makeshift PR press conference. And when he was on his way there, he said, If I'd planned to wreck my career, I couldn't have gone about it better. So his livelihood was on the line. 
CBS set up this makeshift broadcast and every journalist that came and attended, and there were a lot of them, because remember, this was Coast to Coast News, every journalist asked the same question or some variation of the same question. Did you intend for War of the Worlds to throw the audience into a panic? That question would actually dog Orson Welles for the rest of his career. And his answers also changed over the years. It went from complete innocence to hints that he knew exactly what he was doing. And Orson Welles was a very savvy media man. He ended up using this War of the Worlds broadcast as a stepping stone to get his first movie, Citizen Kane, still regarded by many as one of the best movies ever made. So Orson Welles did know what he was doing as far as telling a story. This article that I'm referencing in smithsonianmag.com was printed back in 2015, I believe it was. This article takes a look at the long-forgotten script, the drafts, and the memories of Wells' collaborators, and he put those thoughts into a book. These memories actually capture the behind-the-scenes chaotic things that were going on during the development of this radio broadcast, which happened in about a week's time. But you can tell by the notes that nobody that was involved with the production of War of the Worlds ever thought that it would be taken this seriously. Inserting those news broadcasts was the Mercury Theater on the Air's desperate attempt to make the show seem halfway plausible. And apparently it really succeeded. And almost by accident. Obviously it went far beyond any of their expectations. When Wells put on that version of Mercury Theater on the air, it had been on the CBS radio broadcasting network for 17 weeks. It was a low-budget program. It had no sponsor. Sounds familiar. (laughs) But the series had a small but loyal following because they did fresh adaptations of literary classics. But this particular Halloween, Wells wanted to do something science fiction-oriented. And he wanted to do something different from anything that the Mercury Theater had done up to that point. This Smithsonian Magazine article actually quotes a 1960 court deposition as part of a lawsuit against CBS to be recognized as the broadcast's rightful co-author. And Wells offered an explanation in his inspiration for War of the Worlds in this court proceeding. He said, I had conceived of an idea of doing a radio broadcast in such a manner that a crisis would actually seem to be happening and would be broadcast in such a dramatized form as to appear to be a real event taking place at that time rather than a mere radio play. According to these notes, without even knowing which book he wanted to adapt, Wells brought the idea to John Hausman, his producer, and Paul Stewart, who was a veteran radio actor who co-directed the Mercury broadcasts. Those guys sat down and they were the ones, that trio was the one who settled on H.G. Wells' 1898 classic, 40 years before, The War of the Worlds. Hausman, though, doubted that Wells had ever even read the story. If you join us next time, we'll actually take a little bit further look at this article because it it really takes an interesting look at the the behind-the-scenes chaos that ended up becoming a cacophony of news and fake news cries and the FCC got involved or the equivalent of the FCC. It ultimately ended up in government intervention, and we'll take a look a little bit more about the actual production of this brilliant broadcast by Orson Welles next time. We have a really long chapter to get to tonight. If you were with us last time for Chapter 13, How I Fell In with the Curate, 
you'll remember that our humble narrator and a companion are on their way to London, which is tonight's chapter in London. But let's take a look back real quick at chapter 13 so that we can all be on the same page and understand where our narrator stands. As always, our notes are brought to us from shmoop.com, S-H-M-O-O-P dot C-O-M. So in chapter 13, as you recall, it was how I fell in with the curate. Rather than invade London, the Martians retreat back to Horsell Common after one of them gets killed in chapter 12. And that means the British Army has lots of time to entrench themselves and prepare their defenses, which we're sure are going to be very effective this time around because the rest of the book will probably just be a tour guide of Woking. Probably has several charming tea shops as well as seaside inns. Instead of advancing on London, the Martians are hard at work on something there in Horsell Common. You threatening music. Meanwhile, the narrator finds a small boat and he drifts towards London using his poor burnt hands, his parboiled fleshy hands, as the worst possible paddles ever. He rests for a while on shore when he finally reaches it, and out of the blue, he becomes angry at his wife. Of course, as he says, It is a curious thing that I felt angry with my wife. I cannot account for it, but my impotent desire to reach Leatherhead worried me excessively. Is there anything more to say about this? Well, of course there is. Oh boy, is there ever. We'll have to check it out a little bit more when we review the characters of the story when you join us next time or perhaps the time after that. So when our narrator wakes up after resting there on the shore, he discovers that he has a new friend, the curate, meaning a parish priest or an assistant priest. The curate wants to know what it all means and becomes very philosophical. Why did the bad Martians happen to good English people? The narrator tries to get him thinking about practical issues, but the curate decides that the Martians are a biblical-sized judgment. This must be the beginning of the end. The end! The great and terrible day of the Lord! One thirteen thirty-six. The narrator responds with both a theological argument and a practical one. Theologically, hey, God's not an insurance agent. And practical, we're in the middle of a battlefield and should probably get a move on. We're convinced by both arguments, though we're not sure which one would convince a curate. So that's where we are right now, and we're going to find out what happened in Chapter 14 in London. Or as our narrator would say, Chapter 14 in London. Thank you for joining me once again. I'm Bart, your narrator, sound effects guru, and all-around literature lover... Thanks for joining us for Public Domain Playhouse. 
yet another chapter of the H.G. Wells classic, War of the Worlds. Let's get going. Chapter 14 In London My younger brother was in London when the Martians fell at Woking. He was a medical student working for an imminent examination, and he heard nothing of the arrival until Saturday morning. The morning papers on the Saturday contained, in addition to lengthy special articles on the planet Mars, on the life in the planets and so forth, a brief and vaguely worded telegram all the more striking for its brevity. The Martians, alarmed by the approach of the crowd, had killed a number of people with a quick-firing gun. So the story ran. The telegram concluded with the words, Formidable as they seem to be, the Martians have not moved from the pit into which they have fallen and indeed seem incapable of doing so. Probably this is due to the relative strength of the Earth's gravitational energy. On that last text, their leader writer expanded very comfortingly. Of course, all the students in the Crammer's biology class, to which my brother went that day, were intensely interested. But there were no signs of any unusual excitement in the streets. The afternoon papers puffed scraps of news under big headlines. They had nothing to tell beyond the movements of troops about the common and the burning of the pine woods between Woking and Weybridge until eight. Then the St. James Gazette, in an extra special edition, announced the bare fact of the interruption of telegraphic communication. This was thought to be due to the falling of burning pine trees across the line. Nothing more of the fighting was known that night, the night of my drive to Leatherhead and back. My brother felt no anxiety about us, as he knew from the description in the papers that the cylinder was a good two miles from my house. He made up his mind to run down that night to me, in order, as he says, to see the things before they were killed. He dispatched a telegram which never reached me, about four o'clock, and spent the evening at a music hall. In London also, on Saturday night, there was a thunderstorm, and my brother reached Waterloo in a cab. On the platform from which the midnight train usually starts, he learned, after some waiting, that an accident prevented trains from reaching Woking that night. The nature of the accident he could not ascertain. Indeed, the railway authorities did not clearly know at that time. There was very little excitement in the station, as the officials, failing to realize that anything further than a breakdown between Byfleet and Woking Junction had occurred, were running the theater trains which usually passed between Woking round by Virginia Water or Guildford. They were busy making the necessary arrangements to alter the route of the Southampton and Portsmouth Sunday League excursions, a nocturnal newspaper reporter, mistaking my brother for the traffic manager to whom he bears a slight resemblance, waylaid and tried to interview him. Few people, excepting the railway officials, connected the breakdown with the Martians. 
I have read in another account of these events that on Sunday morning, all London was electrified by the news from Woking. As a matter of fact, there was nothing to justify that very extravagant phrase. Plenty of Londoners did not hear of the Martians until the panic of Monday morning. Those who did took some time to realize all that the hastily worded telegrams in the Sunday papers conveyed. The majority of people in London do not read Sunday papers. The habit of personal security, moreover, is so deeply fixed in the Londoner's mind, and startling intelligence so much a matter of course in the papers, that they could read without any personal tremors. About seven o'clock last night, the Martians came out of the cylinder and moving about under an armor of metallic shields, have completely wrecked Woking Station with the adjacent houses, and massacred an entire battalion of Cardigan Regiment. No details are known. Maxims have been absolutely useless against their armor. The field guns have been disabled by them. Flying hussars have been galloping into Chertsey. The Martians appear to be moving slowly towards Chertsey or Windsor. Great anxiety prevails in West Surrey, and earthworks are being thrown up to check the advance Londonward. That was how the Sunday Sun put it and a clever and remarkably prompt handbook article in the referee compared the affair to a menagerie suddenly let loose in a village. No one in London knew positively of the nature of the armored Martians, and there was still a fixed idea that these monsters must be sluggish, crawling, creeping painfully. Such expressions occurred in almost all the earlier reports. None of the telegrams could have been written by an eyewitness of their advance. The Sunday papers printed separate editions as further news came to hand, some even in default of it. There was practically nothing more to tell people until late in the afternoon when the authorities gave the press agencies the news in their possession. It was stated that the people of Walton and Weybridge and all the district were pouring along the roads Londonward, and that was all. My brother went to church at the Foundling Hospital in the morning, still in ignorance of what had happened on the previous night. There he heard allusions made to the invasion and a special prayer for peace. Coming out, he bought a referee. He became alarmed at the news in this and went again to Waterloo Station to find out if communication were restored. The omnibuses, carriages, cyclists, and innumerable people walking in their best clothes seemed scarcely affected by the strange intelligence that the news vendors were disseminating. People were interested or, if alarmed, alarmed only on account of the local residents. At the station, he heard for the first time that the Windsor and Chertsey lines were now interrupted. The porters told him that several remarkable telegrams had been received in the morning from Byfleet and Chertsey stations, but that these had abruptly ceased. My brother could get very little precise detail out of them. Was the extent of their information. The train service was now very much disorganized. Quite a number of people who had been expecting friends from places on the southwestern network were standing about the station. One gray-headed old gentleman came and abused the southwestern company bitterly to my brother. 
It wants nothing showing up, he said. One or two trains came in from Richmond, Perkney, and Kingston, containing people who had gone out for a day's boating and found the locks closed and a feeling of panic in the air. A man in a blue and white blazer addressed my brother, full of strange tidings. There's hosts of people driving into Kingston in traps and carts and things, with boxes of valuables and all that, he said. They come from Molesey and Weybridge and Walton, and they say there's been guns heard at Chelsea, heavy firing, and that mounted soldiers have told them to get off at once because the Martians are coming. We heard guns firing at Hampton Court Station, but we thought it was thunder. What the dickens does it all mean? The Martians can't get out of their pit, can they? My brother could not tell him. Afterwards, he found that the vague feeling of alarm had spread to the clients of the Underground Railway, and that the Sunday excursionists began to return from all over the southwestern Lung, Barnes, Wimbledon, Richmond Park, Kew, and so forth, at unnaturally early hours but not a soul had anything more than vague hearsay to tell of. Everyone connected with the terminus seemed ill-tempered. About five o'clock, the gathering crowd in the station was immensely excited by the opening of the line of communication, which is almost invariably closed between the southeastern and the southwestern stations, and the passage of carriage trucks bearing huge guns and carriages crammed with soldiers. These were the guns that were brought up at Woolwich and Chatham to cover Kingston. There was an exchange of pleasantries. You'll get eaten. We're the beast tamers. And so forth. A little while after that, a squad of police came into the station and began to clear the public off the platforms, and my brother went out into the street again. The church bells were ringing for evensong, and a squad of Salvation Army lassies came singing down Waterloo Road. On the bridge, a number of loafers were watching a curious brown scum that came drifting down the stream in patches. The sun was just setting, and the clock tower and the Houses of Parliament rose against one of the most peaceful skies it is possible to imagine. A sky of gold, barred with long transverse stripes of reddish-purple cloud. There was talk of a floating body. One of the men there, a reservist he said he was, told my brother he had seen the heliograph flickering in the west. In Wellington Street, my brother met a couple of sturdy roughs who had just been rushed out of Fleet Street with still wet newspapers and staring placards. Dreadful catastrophe, they bawled one to the other down Wellington Street. Fighting at Weybridge, full description, repulse of the Martians, London in danger. He had to give threepence for a copy of that paper. Then it was, and then only, that he realized something of the full power and terror of these monsters. He learned that they were not merely a handful of small sluggish creatures, but that they were minds swaying vast mechanical bodies, and that they could move swiftly and smite with such power that even the mightiest guns could not stand against them. 
They were described as fast, nearly all capable of the speed of a and able to shoot out a beam of an mass batteries, chiefly of field guns, have been planted in the country about Horsell Common, and especially between the Woking District and London. Five of the machines have been seen moving towards the Thames, and one, by a happy chance, had been destroyed. In the other cases, the shells had missed, and the batteries had been at once annihilated by the heat rays. Heavy losses of soldiers were mentioned, but the tone of the dispatch was optimistic. The Martians had been repulsed. They were not invulnerable. They had retreated to their triangle of cylinders again in the circle about Woking. Signalers with heliographs were pushing forward upon them from all sides. Guns were in rapid transit from Windsor, Portsmouth, Aldershot, Woolwich, even from the north, among others. Long wire guns of 95 tons from Woolwich. Altogether, 116 were in position or being hastily placed, chiefly covering London. Never before in England had there been such a vast or rapid concentration of military material. Any further cylinders that fell, it was hoped, could be destroyed at once by high explosives, which were being rapidly manufactured and distributed. No doubt, ran the report, the situation was of the strangest and gravest description, but the public was exhorted to avoid and discourage panic. No doubt, the Martians were strange and terrible in the extreme, but at the outside, there could not be more than twenty of them against our millions. The authorities had reason to suppose, from the size of the cylinders, that at the outside there could not be more than five in each cylinder, fifteen altogether, and one at least was disposed of, perhaps more. The public would be fairly warned of the approach of danger, and elaborate measures were being taken for the protection of the people in the threatened southwestern suburbs. And so, with reiterated assurances of the safety of London and the ability of the authorities to cope with the difficulty, this quasi-proclamation was closed. This was printed in enormous type on paper so fresh it's still wet, and there had been no time to add a word of comment. It was curious, my brother said, to see how ruthlessly the usual contents of the paper had been hacked and taken out to give this place. All down Wellington Street, people could be seen fluttering out the pink sheets and reading, and the Strand was suddenly noisy with the voices of an army of hawkers following these pioneers. Men came scrambling off buses to secure copies, Certainly, this news excited people intensely, whatever their previous apathy. The shutters of a map shop in the Strand were being taken down, my brother said, and a man in his Sunday raiment, lemon-yellow gloves even, was visible inside the window hastily fastening maps of Surrey to the glass. Going on along the Strand to Trafalgar Square, paper in his hand, my brother saw some of the fugitives from West Surrey. There was a man with his wife and two boys and some articles of furniture in a cart, such as greengrocers use. 
He was driving from the direction of Westminster Bridge, and close behind him came a hay wagon with five or six respectable-looking people in it, and some boxes and bundles. The faces of these people were haggard, and their entire appearance contrasted conspicuously with the Sabbath-best appearance of the people on the omnibuses. People in fashionable clothing peeped at them outside of cabs. They stopped at the square as if undecided which way to take, and finally turned eastward along the strand. Some way behind these came a man in workday clothes, riding one of those old-fashioned tricycles with a small front wheel. He was dirty and white in the face. My brother turned down towards Victoria and met a number of such people. He had a vague idea that he might be seeing something of me. He noticed an unusual number of police regulating the traffic. Some of the refugees were exchanging news with the people on the omnibuses. One was professing to have seen the Martians. Boilers on stilts, I tell ya, striding along like men. Most of them were excited and animated by their strange experience. Beyond Victoria, the public houses were doing a lively trade with these arrivals. At all the street corners, groups of people were reading papers, talking excitedly or staring at these unusual Sunday visitors. They seemed to increase as night drew on, until at last the roads, my brother said, were like Epsom High Street on a derby day. My brother addressed several of these fugitives and got unsatisfactory answers from most. None of them could tell him any news of Woking except one man, who assured him that Woking had been entirely destroyed on the previous night. I come from Byfleet, he said. Man on a bicycle came through the place in the early morning and ran from door to door warning us to come away. Then came soldiers. We went out to look and there were clouds of smoke to the south. Nothing but smoke and not a soul coming that way. Then we heard the guns at Chertsey and folks coming from Weybridge. So I've locked up my house and come on. At the time, there was a strong feeling in the streets that the authorities were to blame for their incapacity to dispose of the invaders without all this inconvenience. About eight o'clock, a noise of heavy firing was distinctly audible over the south of London. My brother could not hear it for the traffic in the main thoroughfares, but by striking through the quiet back streets to the river, he was able to distinguish it quite plainly. He walked from Westminster to his apartments near Regent's Park about two. He was now very anxious on my account and disturbed at the evident magnitude of the trouble. His mind was inclined to run, even as mine had run on Saturday, on military details. He thought of all those silent expectant guns of the suddenly nomadic countryside. He tried to imagine boilers on stilts a hundred feet high. There were one or two cartloads of refugees passing along Oxford Street and several in the Marleybone Road, but so slowly was the news spreading that Regent Street and Portland Place were full of their usual Sunday night promenaders, albeit they talked in groups. And along the edge of Regent's Park, there were as many silent couples walking out together under the scattered gas lamps as ever there had been. The night was warm and still, 
and a little oppressive. The sound of guns continued intermittently. And after midnight, there seemed to be sheet lightning in the south. He read and reread the paper, fearing the worst had happened to me. He was restless, and after supper prowled out again aimlessly. He returned and tried in vain to divert his attention to his examination notes. He went to bed a little after midnight, and was awakened from lurid dreams in the small hours of Monday by the sound of door knockers. Feet running in the street, distant drumming, and a clamor of bells. Red reflections danced on the ceiling. For a moment, he lay astonished, wondering whether day had come or the world had gone mad. Then he jumped out of bed and ran to the window. His room was an attic, and as he thrust his head out, up and down the street, there were a dozen echoes of the noise of his window sash and heads in every kind of night disarray appeared. Enquiries were being shouted. They are coming, bawled a policeman, hammering at the door. The Martians are coming, and hurried to the next door. The sound of drumming and trumpeting came from the Albany Street barracks, and every church within earshot was hard at work, killing sleep with a vehement disorderly toxin. There was a noise of doors opening, and window after window in the houses opposite flashed from darkness into yellow illumination. Up the street came galloping a closed carriage, bursting abruptly into noise at the corner, rising to a clattering climax under the window and dying away slowly in the distance. Close on the rear of this came a couple of cabs, the forerunners of a long procession of flying vehicles going for the most part to Chalk Farm Station where the Northwestern Special Trains were loading up instead of coming down the gradient into Houston. For a long time, my brother stared out the window in blank astonishment, watching the policemen hammering at door after door and delivering their incomprehensible message. Then the door behind him opened, and the man who lodged across the landing came in, dressed only in shirt, trousers, and slippers, his braces loose about his waist, his hair disordered from his pillow. What the devil is it? he asked. A fire? What a devil of a row! They both craned their heads out of the window, straining to hear what the policemen were shouting. People were coming out of the side streets and standing in groups at the corners, talking. What the devil is it all about? said my brother's fellow lodger. My brother answered him vaguely and began to dress, running with each garment to the window in order to miss nothing of the growing excitement. And presently, men selling unnaturally early newspapers came bawling into the street. London in danger of suffocation! The Kingston and Richmond defenses forced. Fearful massacres in the Thames Valley. And all about him, in the rooms below, in the houses on each side and across the road, and behind the park terraces, and in the hundred other streets of that part of Marleybone, and the Westbourne Park District, and St. Pancras, and westward and northward in Kilburn and St. John's Wood, 
and Hampstead, and eastward in Shoreditch, and Highbury, and Haggerston, and Hoxton, and indeed, through all the vastness of London. From Ealing to East Ham, people were rubbing their eyes and opening windows to stare out and ask aimless questions, dressing hastily at the first breath of coming storm of fear blew through the streets. It was the dawn of the Great Panic. London, which had gone to bed on Sunday night, oblivious and inert, was awakened in the small hours of Monday morning to a vivid sense of danger. Unable from his window to learn what was happening, my brother went down and out into the street, just as the sky between the parapets and the houses grew pink with the early dawn. The flying people on foot and in vehicles grew more numerous every moment. Black smoke, he heard people crying. And again, black smoke. The contagion of such a unanimous fear was inevitable. As my brother hesitated on the doorstep, he saw another news vendor approaching and got a paper forthwith. The man was running away with the rest and selling his papers for a shilling each as he ran, a grotesque mingling of profit and panic. And from this paper, my brother read the catastrophic dispatch of the commander-in-chief. The Martians are able to discharge enormous clouds of black and poisonous vapor by means of rockets. They have smothered our batteries, destroyed Richmond, Kingston, and Wimbledon, and are advancing slowly towards London, destroying everything on the way. It is impossible to stop them. There is no safety from the black smoke but an instant flight. That was all, but it was enough. The whole population of the great six million city was stirring, slipping, running. Presently, it would be pouring en masse northward. Black smoke, the voices cried. Fire! The bells of the neighboring church made a jangling tumult. A cart, carelessly driven, smashed amid shrieks and curses against the water trough of the street. Sickly yellow lights went to and fro in the houses, and some of the passing cabs flaunted unextinguished lamps. All overhead, the dawn was growing brighter, clear and steady and calm. He heard footsteps running to and fro in the rooms and up and down the stairs behind him. His landlady came to the door, loosely wrapped in dressing gown and shawl. Her husband followed, ejaculating. As my brother began to realize the import of all these things, he turned hastily to his own room, put all his available money, some ten pounds altogether, into his pockets, and went out again into the streets. So there you have it for chapter 14. We find out what happened in London from the classic War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, book one, The Coming of the Martians, chapter 14 in London. Next time, please join us here at Public Domain Playhouse for chapter 15, What Had Happened in Surrey. And perhaps we'll take a look a little bit at London and Horsell Common in Surrey, because Horsell Common is a southwestern suburb of London. It's a short drive 
in an American's point of view, it's a short drive from Horsell Common to London. Less than an hour. Maybe about an hour. And the Martians are marching northeastward, so the general panic... Imagine that. Six million people in London at this time in 1859, but it's set before the turn of the 20th century. Just before the turn of the 20th century, I believe. Imagine six million people running on foot with no cars. That might actually be better. Can you imagine that many cars? They get wedged in the street immediately. So we'll see what happens in Surrey. Surrey is obviously not London. So we're going to see if something goes different there. Maybe the Martians are coming to bring their fabulous recipe for egg salad. And they're going to share it with the Surrey people. And only the Surrey people. But you'll have to tune in next time to find out if that's true or not. Thanks for joining me. I'm Bart. I like to have fun with old literature. I like to bring it to life a little bit and discuss the import and why this book still remains in the lexicon today. Thanks for joining us and come back again for Public Domain Playhouse's The War of the Worlds. We'll see you in the next chapter.